And welcome back for another episode of Studio CPO. This is Care Providers Oklahoma President Stephen Buck, and I am delighted today to have as a special guest, um, actually a, about a decade and a half of friendship between us, uh, Lance Robertson. Uh, Lance is a senior consultant. I know I got the title wrong for Guidehouse. Uh, formerly has served in multiple high levels of government, both at the state and federal level. So Lance, it's been great to renew our friendship and thanks for joining us today. Hey, glad to be here, Steve. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, just some background? Okay, happy to do that. I'm a native Oklahoman mm-hmm. and uh, served uh, originally in um, higher education, Oklahoma State University for about a dozen years. I think that's when we first got to know each other. And then I came to the state and for a decade was the uh, aging director under uh, Governor Brad Henry and Governor Mary Fallon and mm-hmm. then um, had the real honor in 2017 to go to um, D.C. and to serve under the previous administration as uh, President Trump's uh, assistant secretary for aging and also in a bifurcated role ran one of the HHS federal agencies, the Administration for Community Living. And then, of course, um, in the democracy we live in, we have this thing called an election, and they kicked us out in uh, mm-hmm. January 2021. So I came back home, and I'm back in Oklahoma, and I work uh, for a healthcare consultancy. Uh, the, con- the company's name is Guidehouse, um, second largest health consultancy in the world. So we get the, the real honor of working with a lot of states, Oklahoma included, to just help drive forward on some key things that are in that human services um, spectrum. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you, you're also a veteran, correct? Yes, sir. U.S. Army. Thank you for your service to your country. Thank you. Uh, did you ever have to do Fort Sill? I did. Basic training. You did Fort basic at Fort Sill. Did you catch the summer or the winter? I taught the summer. Well, but for you, you were accustomed to Oklahoma summers. Right, right. I, I can imagine that some of your other, uh, some of your colleagues might have found it a little bit challenging. That's right. Absolutely. Well, we, we do want to honor your service. Thank, Thank you for that. I uh, want to salute you for that and certainly your service to the state and mm-hmm. to the country. Now, you talked about your uh, service in, in the Trump administration, and I, I was reflecting. I I think I may have actually been contacted in your vetting process I uh, think you might have been. As, as you went through this. So, and, uh, I know that that was a fascinating experience, and, and one of the things that I know um, fed you intellectually was you had a chance to look at the picture at all 50 states, our district and territories. What are some of the high level observations you can make from your from your experience in the administration? Well, and certainly I think, Steve, um, you know, I learned so much. Like you said, it was a phenomenal opportunity personally and professionally. But having that uh, insight, that perspective, the viewpoint of seeing what's happening across the country was was really um, inspiring, it fed my soul. I was blown away at everything I learned in terms of just best practices. And and really, I think as um, the first observation that that just really reinforced for me across all service areas within the aging network is just this high level of commitment that's been there for decades. People are doing this work because they know it, it makes a difference and it means a lot in the lives of an older adult. So. You know, I really, again, was just profoundly honored to represent all of that and to try as best I could to really create energy and momentum within the $1.7 trillion Department of Health and Human Services and then across the federal government so that we could bring in more allies to support the work that we've been doing. So, you know, again, just first takeaway was just how phenomenally committed the network is. Um, you know, more more broadly, I think I also learned, Steve, something as a microcosm here in the state that you and I both experienced, but I really felt it up there, was that, 
you know, there's there's a lot of politics, but it's all sort of a game. Yeah. But but not in an ugly way. It's just you have to know kind of what the next move is of, you know, getting what you need to get accomplished. And, you know, it's it was an interesting educational opportunity to understand how to best navigate that system. Same thing I think we have to, to learn to do well here at the state level, but just at a much bigger ecosystem level. You know, what what observation I would make in in the years of opportunity I've had is it's easy to get caught up in the gamesmanship that is the politics. Right. But but at the end of the day, I mean you you had the opportunity to peer into systems and services and, and supports and strategies that were impacting people where it really wasn't a red or blue issue. That's right. I mean, whether whether somebody has a Republican lean, a Democratic lean, an independent libertarian, whatever it is, there's some really unique challenges that present themselves in the aging space. Absolutely. And you probably, in that role, even though the, the media makes this hype in partisanship, there are probably a lot of illustrated examples of bipartisanship that you saw when you were doing this work that you thought, stepped back and said, okay, that's really cool. This is how it's supposed to work. 100%. I agree. And I wish, I wish Steve, more Americans could see that because what we're, of course, often exposed to, um, regardless of which um, media source you choose to listen to, everything is filtered, as we know. But in reality, and D.C., thankfully, is this way, people are particularly in the aging space working in a very cooperative, collaborative way. Um, so much of what we had to, to resolve was apolitical. It didn't matter. Um, some of the, some of the uh, I'll use word best friends that I made in D.C. were on the opposite side of the aisle. And it was because we were able to quickly galvanize around what we knew were key and critical issues. And, you know, Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania, as an example, would, would call me, you know, twice a week on my cell. Um, just because he was so committed to what we were doing and had thoughts and questions. And, you know, I, I found that so energizing. Same thing, of course, on the other side of the aisle. But, but again, I, I was always as vocal as I could be to help people appreciate that that stuff does happen. You don't see it reported, but it does happen. Right. So you talk about the themes of bipartisanship. You talk about um, neutrality, if you will, of issues. We, we've got something in that very vein that's happening in Oklahoma right now, which is uh, you have been part in your consultancy of helping shepherd the early phases and ultimate implementation of a state master plan on aging, um, which has been a very ambitious endeavor. I have I have been delightful to be part of that, delighted to be part of that. I don't know how delightful my involvement has been. I, I try, but it, it's a good process. Yes. And we're just in the early days of some of the initial broader public awareness of the state's effort in the master plan. Mm -hmm. Um, what are some of your early observations as somebody who's both shepherding it, but also um, taking in some of the observations that are beginning to emerge as priorities? Right, right. And, and first, thank you, Steve, for your involvement. That's a, uh, you know, a time commitment, and we really are grateful for, for both your time and your input. So for me, it's such an exciting time, and this is such a fabulous um, project. I, I really wish, um, as soon as we could, more and more Oklahomans were aware of this mammoth effort and commitment, because it is pretty unique. Oklahoma should be very um, pleased and excited that we're almost a trailblazer of sorts. Other states, not many, but a handful of states have been doing this multi-plan, multi-sector uh, work, but Oklahoma's really doing it right. And that's what I wanna make sure people appreciate both now and at the end of 
this entire effort because um, there have long been plan requirements in place for states around aging services. For instance, my federal former federal agency, ACL, has a four-year required plan. So listeners should know that a lot of that structure already is in place. What's different, though, about a multi-sector plan is, as you've experienced, Steve, the ability to bring all the right people around the table and to make this a plan driven and informed and governed by all of us. And that's ultimately going to be the only solution that will work. Uh, you know, I remember back in, in a hearing in D.C., uh, one of the senators was grilling me about what are our solutions, and I just had to pause and say, well, Senator, there is no governmental fix to addressing this growing aging population and, and their consequent needs. It's going to be a community by community and um, almost an individual by individual kind of commitment, and that's what a multi-sector plan is. What's great, I think, about it, Steve, is as the title would indicate, there's a lot of different folks around the table that aren't regularly seen but are a critical part of that aging care conversation. So, you know, for me, I think about in Oklahoma, um, our faith-based community and how powerfully um, relevant they are to this, but how rarely did you and I have them around the table when it came to public sector, public-funded services. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes it's population targets such as our tribal friends and you know there there has to be less fragmentation around how they're cared for and you know how can we leverage some of that veterans and and just all sorts of folks now that are getting excited about this led of course as you know by the department of human services um, it has to have a home somewhere somebody has to be in charge but just the diversity of folks engaged in this is so promising and we're doing it right and we're not rushing it we're making sure that the stakeholder feedback's occurring and you know, the pace is the way it should be. So all of this um, should be a, a moment of, of great pride for Oklahomans because, again, we're, we're kind of creating the model. You know, as you, as you walk through that, you talked about it. It can be a statewide, it can be community level, all the way down to individuals and their own accountabilities and opportunities. Lance, I'm, I'm struck by a very small project at the State Department of Health called the uh, OBHI, the Oklahoma Brain Health Initiative. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they are doing, uh, for example, uh, they are doing workshops for businesses focused on becoming a dementia-friendly business. Great. You know, and, and you think about, uh, sometimes when we, we, we think about challenges like this incredible number of people who are going to be entering what we would call the aging years, mm-hmm. we, we think about all these high-level governmental corporate solutions. But at some level, making our state aging-friendly is really about the way we interact with each other and, and that we understand that the way we communicate, the way we uh, do signage, the way we do environment like lights, that can make a difference. Absolutely. And so I, I think that's been one of the things as I've sat through this plan, some of our some of our friends have driven home the message that, uh, to your point, it's not an all government solution. Right. And so right. I'm excited to see what it produces. Yeah, yeah. And I think to that point, Steve, you know, the the reality is we have long been an ageist community. We don't often acknowledge that, but we have been. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is for us to work our way through this successfully, it's it's going to take a cultural change. We have to begin um, appreciating that this not only involves everybody we love, but all of us one day. Correct. And, um, you know, I think about so many, um, you know, cross sector conversations that are gaining momentum that help as well. So for instance, the family caregiver support momentum that is just phenomenal um, has been a long time coming. And what we're seeing now, I think is sort of an unprecedented watermark of support 
from Congress that I'm really excited about as well. All of that ties together, you know, being dementia friendly and, and really being just person centric and making mm-hmm. sure that folks aren't talked about, but they're talked with and to and engaged in the conversation, have a voice and are part of the solution. And, you know, back to the MPA, that was part of the stakeholder um, engagement piece that was very purposeful. Mm-hmm. You know, let's not go make a plan about older Oklahomans. Let's go get some of their feedback yeah. and input and thoughts. Isn't it amazing how things really work better when you involve the stakeholders who are directly most yeah. impacted? Absolutely. Yeah. It pays after, dividends. After almost 30 years of marriage, Steve, I learned that works in a marriage too, right? Yeah, I better, it's, I better get the boss's input before. It's that. sound counsel, whatever <laughs> work you're doing. That's right. Well, well Lance, it's, it's, I mean, obviously one of the, uh, the key components of our podcast listenership are going to be those who are providing residential services for seniors, whether it be uh, nursing homes, assisted livings, um, those facilities that specifically serve those with intellectual disabilities and in an, an environment that is residential in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I have had many talks through the years about how important the platform is. And, and you certainly know that uh, both in terms of the COVID impact as well as workforce challenges, it, it has been a very challenging period of time for these providers. Uh, based upon your, the accumulation of your knowledge and, and things you have, what, what advice would you give those who are in the residential space about what their place might look like as we see this increased number of people who are in that aging period? Oh, that's such a great question, Steve. And, you know, I do want to, of course, just to your listeners, express my tremendous thanks and gratitude because you're right. It has been a tough haul. Um, as we all know, any sort of um, congregate setting or, or any place where folks are gathered in, in, uh, in groups like that have just really taken the biggest hit. Um, you know, I got to, of course, this part of Operation Warp Speed at the federal mm-hmm. level be a part of all that. And it was difficult, although I will say, a, a you know, a benefit of making lemons or lemonade out of lemons, Steve, was I, I can tell you the White House was probably less in tune with what an aging population needed until COVID hit. And of course, it manifested, as we all know, first up in the Northwest. So I spent time in Oregon and Washington and, and really relaying a lot of those experiences back to the White House, I think, helped shape our response to, to the pandemic, which ultimately, I think, will linger long term and benefiting the residential communities that we that we're proud of. So I guess to your question, Steve, what I would argue or, or at least make a hypothesis to, to clearly say that we are all part of this broader care ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, I know you've seen it too, Steve, we, we sort of end up um, bucketing or, or creating territories and, and we think, okay, we must preserve and protect, you know, in this case, the residential care delivery system because it's a threat from community living, say, advocates. And again, having ran the administration for community living, we were not anti-residential. But as you and I both know, the majority of folks, if we do this care spectrum approach well, should be cared for the longest they can be in their community, lowest cost setting, most preferred. But there will be a time when they do need a higher level of acute care. So bottom line is, I would hope that listeners can appreciate lessening their anxiety about protecting their current service delivery market and know that you know, both by demographic number, but then also by necessity, there's a place for everybody in all of this, and there always will be. Um, I don't think there are advocates out there that would love to see the end of a residential setting. Um, I wouldn't. I think there are certainly situations where people thrive better in, in those cases, but we also know the care needs are often more profound, and, you know, that's the best way to, to make sure that quality care is delivered. So, so I guess bottom line is, um, from a former assistant secretary's perspective, I would 
I would lose sleep and be anxious over watching the infighting within our network mm. yeah. because, you know, we, we believe we're this 50-pound gorilla, but when I would be on Capitol Hill, all human service programs are backseat to the bigger industries that have the money. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, we think the congressman's going to care about overdose. <coughs> Excuse me. When in reality, it's you know, it's the oil lobbyist or the right. pharmaceutical lobbyist or all these other people that have the biggest stroke. So we, therefore, I guess the bottom line is we gotta we gotta stand together and be united and just help appreciate that common message of higher quality, better services, more person centered um, approaches to caring for older Oklahomans. So we're going to shift gears a little bit now. Right. Uh, you you've served in some. Um, Obviously, from your, your resume, your accomplishments, some very high-level leadership positions. You didn't arrive in those by accident. Uh, you got there because you invested in yourself, and you also invested in some philosophy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pin you down. When you think about all of the leadership axioms, mm-hmm. bottom-line approaches that you've used, what, what would be your favorite go-to leadership theme or axiom you would borrow from that has helped you achieve what you've achieved thus far? Yeah, such a great question. So for me, what's always driven me to action, Steve, is the old adage that if you know, you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And I think in our society today, way too many people, whether purposefully or, or just in, you know, inadvertently, are part of the problem. They're not part of the solution. They're not bringing the right attitude or commitment to the table to help solve issues big and small. So for me, that's always been just a profound gnawing driver for me is I want to always like so many of us, I want to be part of the solution. I'm, I'm tired of the, the dog piling on, you know, what are the problems and the blemishes and the things that we're unhappy about. If we want to make the world a better place, it's going to take all of us committing to being part of the solution. All right. One final question. Yes, sir. Thinking about, young Lance, who was just starting his career up at Oklahoma State University, and now you've advanced through all of these levels of accountability. What do you wish you could tell young Lance that young Lance would have known when you started this ascent? (laughs) Well, so I, I definitely would, in answering that, Steve, say that for me, it was learning to appreciate what ultimately mattered and not sweating the small stuff. It's a little cliche, I know, but as a young professional that was trying to drive and make a difference, I I sort of felt like it was the all or nothing approach. You had to get it all done. You had to make everybody happy. You had to build all the right relationships all at the right same time. And number one, that's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's effective, you know, and I would say for young professionals, and I know both you and I are honored to mentor a lot of young and upcoming folks. And that's one of the key things I tell them, Steve, is, is be focused, be intentional, you know, start to really prioritize where you want your time and your energy to go because there will never be enough of those commodities. And if you begin to chase all the rabbits, you're just going to wear yourself out. So, you know, I know for me that was that was kind of a tougher lesson as I went through my 20s and 30s. Right. And, and even looking back, very regretfully thinking of maybe some family time I sacrificed because I worked those long hours right. or did things that I thought ultimately would make a difference. And when looking back, I thought, no, it didn't really move the needle. You know, it was just a lot of activity, but not a lot of, of needle moving. Yeah. Now, what you just said really drew a thought out in me as I was listening to your response. And and, and my guess is, um, I don't know as, you, as why as you said this, it really caught on me. But to build upon what you said a little bit, I, I think about how where I'm at currently, I have learned to, bow, to budget time to think 
and as you were talking about having to sweat everything, mm-hmm. that's the way I used to be. Yeah. But but my guess is as as you've done this and as you work during the the administra- the Trump administration, finding time to think and regroup is important. Absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely essential that we do that. Yeah. Well, Lance, I've always appreciated your friendship. It's good to have you on this podcast. Um, I, I've always appreciated your insights. I, I might want to invite you back for a future one. Um, I know that you're giving some intellectual thought to some strategies that rural nursing homes might use to um, to be an anchor in their community. So, um, you know, we get to the summer. I might bring you back so we can talk about that. I'm encouraged by your thoughts. Happy to do it, Steve. Anytime. All right. Well, this is Steve Buck uh, signing off for Studio, Studio CPO. Thanks for listening and have a great day.